0: Good afternoon, America, and good morning, Australia. You're back listening to Radio Tony, and this is a conversation with Kez. Listening live online, we have the wonderful payo in the Philippines ready to respond to your comments and questions with website links and information. Don't forget to like and subscribe Radio Tony on bbsradio.com forward slash Radio Tony. And a big shout out to everyone who's listening live today. We've got another wonderful show. This is only the second in the series of our new shows with Kez. And my wonderful co-host, Kez Wickham St. George, is the driver of her own creativity and her passion is to inspire and nurture others to tell their stories. Her values are simple. When you touch a heart, you can change a life by encouraging you to write or journal. Her belief is it will only add value to your life. I'm really extraordinarily proud to be co-hosting this show with international award-winning author Kez Wickham-St. George. And I'm going to hand over to her right now.
1: I feel like I should applaud myself that's a wonderful introduction thank you (laughs) Tony I'm gonna let you down I have not copied your bio off but all I can do is say that you have written a book (laughs) I've got it here you are a wonderful radio host and I haven't got your bio with me I am so sorry no, that's <laughs> I,
0: that's fine. <laughs> um, on our show this week, though, we have a show favorite, uh, Mr. Robert Fulton, and Robert is an inspirational reinvention specialist, author, and pilot. Robert was just three months shy of retirement, having fully vested in his employer's retirement plan, when they pulled the program and laid everyone off. Robert was forced forced to reinvent himself for the first time in his life, and in his 50-year career as a pilot, he was grounded. Robert had to figure out how to overcome PTSD, deep depression, and what on earth he would do in his late 60s. Out of this time, a book was born, Up in the Air, A Pilot's Journey, his aviation memoir spanning 50 years. Robert also become an award-winning speaker with Toastmasters and he now speaks on overcoming obstacles, reinvention, retirement and leadership. The book is called up in the air and with more than 20,000 flying hours, Robert Fulton takes you up in the air in a series of 10 chapters that detail stories produced by a wide variety of fixed wing and helicopter missions that on occasion rise to the level of breathtaking terror, as well as the luxury of immense relief. In a career spanning almost 50 years, Fulton dives into the riddles of fate in the air, into life's struggle to survive no matter what, finding a way, risking life and limb to achieve a goal, taking calculated risks to overcome an obstacle that blocks your progress lessons are applicable to life and living and are paralleled by the author through the lessons in flight where the elements and fate's cruelest outcomes are presented as experiences to learn from up in the air a pilot's journey will have you paying rapt attention to find out how the story ended or what is next but it will also give you the feelings As the author, as he steers in hopeful directions for a favourable outcome for his patients, his passengers and fellow pilots who deserve success and to be shielded from fate at its worst. Good afternoon, Robert, and welcome back to Radio Tony. This is a conversation with Kez and we are delighted to have you on the show today. Today, I'm sharing questions with my gorgeous co-host Kez and I'm going to pass the microphone over to her for the first question.
1: Good morning, Robert.
2: Good morning. I'm very pleased to be here. I'm pleased to meet you.
1: Thank you. I'm pleased to meet you too. I'm, okay. I'm an author, and I'm good, it's good to hear that you're an author. There's nothing like writing, is there? Exactly. So my first question to you is, um, there's a lovely description of the first time you went up in the air as a child. Can you uh, recount this um, for uh, the listeners to listen to?
2: Absolutely. My parents were in the RCAF during the war, so neither one of them were aircrew. But uh, there were always lots of magazines uh, from from those times, and their scrapbooks, which I poured through as a at a very young young age. I finally got the chance to actually go up in an airplane. We had uh, a couple that lived next door, who he had flown in Korea as a Navy pilot and had his own little four place uh, uh, Piper aircraft, and he took my mom and I up. Uh, one. It was, kind, it, it was a nice day in Olympia, Washington, and uh, I climbed into the back seat. I think my mom and he may have been in the front, but it was a green airplane with a yellow stripe. I can vividly see it today. I remember the engine starting. I remember kind of rumbling down the taxiway. The flight wasn't very long, but I never forgot it, and the thrill of going up in this air, even though I couldn't really comprehend everything that was going on, uh, was a great treat that I Always remembered. And not too long after that, I gave up my ambition to be a Royal Canadian Mounted Policeman and be a pilot.
1: (laughs) I don't blame you. It sounds wonderful. Yeah. Tony, have you any questions for Robert? I do. Um, Robert,
0: just for the listeners, you are currently and have been living in America for the longest time, but you were actually born in Canada, weren't you?
2: Yes, I was born in uh, Regina, Saskatchewan. uh, I I was the reason my mother was discharged from the Air Force. (laughs) My parents were married, of course. (laughs) So yes, and uh, we. uh, uh, my dad had uh, been In Olympia, Washington, off and on as a child, although he was from British Columbia. And uh, after the war, Um. they moved back there. And so I was a year, year and a half old uh, when we moved back. But we had relatives uh, in Calgary and in British Columbia that we visited all during my young life. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. So uh, back in those days, women were not allowed to keep working once they were pregnant in the air force. Is that correct?
2: I would say that's correct because uh, my mother had joined; both my parents had joined in uh, in forty when the war first started, and been in the air force um, the whole time. And my parents were yeah. married in the uh, the last, uh, I think, in forty four.
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um. So back to the book. Um, one of my favourite phrases in the book is in one of the chapters called 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, but the phrase is bull riding in the snow. Can you explain what that means for the audience, please, Robert?
2: Uh, yes. It comes towards the end of of, the, of a fairly long uh, recollection of an, a pretty dramatic event in the Arctic. Yes. And uh, it's, I was trying
0: to chapter.
2: I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: Sorry, Robert. I don't want to give away the the chapter to the the audience because no, no. it's 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 a really good chapter. It was that yeah the the it is um, a wonderful long chapter. So go on. Sorry.
2: So we had gone down in a in a whiteout. Uh, luckily, we stayed right side <laughs> right side up. But if you've ever been in a whiteout or been in the desert when there was a lot of sand and you can't see your hand in front of your face, you understand yeah. how disorienting it is. Ah. Uh, We went through a series of attempts to extract ourselves. The winds were 50 miles an hour. It was brutal. Uh, I'd been in the jungle flying not six months before. This was a totally different environment to me. About the time we weren't sure if we were stuck for good, the sun started to come through the blowing snow very high, but it created a bit of a shadow And the ridges that we were down in a a gully and the ridges climbing up out of the gully, um, the the wind had cleared them. And there were little black stones frozen to the ground that went up the ridges. And in a helicopter, that's all you need. You need some kind of reference to tell if you're going sideways or forward or whatever. So I... um, It was kind of like a Hansel and Gretel thing, except we weren't eating the bread. We were looking for the rocks. And uh, so I started to hover up a ridge and following those black stones. And then we might be in the air 30 seconds, sometimes maybe as much as a minute, following those black stones right outside the bubble of the helicopter. And then it would just go white again. And you had no feeling of sideways. You had no. And you hoped when you came down, you were on a ridge that you weren't too far to the left or too far to the right, that you roll down into the gully. Of course. So um, it got to be, you know, up, bang, up, bang kind of thing. And I had a technician with me. And up to that point, he was pretty confident, but he was starting to wonder. And I tried to bring humor to the uh, fairly desperate situation. And uh, I said, this is bull riding in the snow. And I got a weak smile from him. And uh, we proceeded. <laughs> so. And we eventually. Well, I won't. I won't give away this story. But that was one uh, one uh, vital part of it for sure.
0: Robert, did you ever feel scared in those moments in that helicopter, or were you completely focused on the job at hand?
2: The latter. I, I was completely focused, and it may have been that the military taught me that. I'm not sure, but all, yes. always in my flying career, I I won't the more desperate things are, the calmer I get. And then about two or three days later, my knees buckle. That's kind of the way I operate.
1: <laughs> I think it's going to be an age thing, Robert.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, but that's, uh, I, I can't, and you know, it, it, fear is a funny thing, and there's no doubt that you, you feel fear, but the concentration yes. of trying to do something yeah. quite intricate that takes your total concentration, uh, none of that other comes in. And, of course, the the, the first step to utter chaos is to take a deep breath and have panic show up, and then you're really (laughs) messed up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And Kev has the next question for you, Robert. So, Uh, Robert, you described 400 orange helicopters converging from all points on the parker. County Courthouse uh, you describe them like bees swarming to the beehive. What is this description, and can you take our listeners back to that time and place?
2: yes I, I'd, I'd be happy to. I, you know that of that time, unknown to most of the world and probably most of America, could have been labeled, and I've thought as quite often since as the eighth wonder of the world. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> 400 helicopters with pilots that none of which had more than, say, 20 hours of flying time, trying to sort themselves out in the sky with no tower, no direction, no arrows, and uh, get in a line that is 25 miles long and go to the landing pad is uh, fairly astounding. But these kind of <laughs> things just happened to us. We, we No one knew we were headed for this kind of uh, predicament. Um when I went in the Army, I, I I joined a little desperately in that I had been in Air Force and Navy programs in college, but kept running out of money, and this was kind of the last train, uh, last uh, uh, flight training train to leave the station, and uh, I had a little airplane. I thought I pretty well knew how to fly. I showed up in, in the Army uh, there after basic training and said, I'd like a nice twin-engine airplane, please, and they said, no. See the line over there? Get in the line. You're going to be a helicopter pilot. I knew nothing about helicopters. So anyway, so that was, we had these small two-place helicopters. They had a 180-horsepower engine under, this, under the floor, and they had like a series, I, I will say, somewhere around 8 to 10 fan belts, like you see in your car engine compartment driving the rotor from a shaft on the engine and you had a little brake like a volkswagen brake that you pulled up and Oop. increased the tension on
1: those <laughs> goodness belts. me
2: belts <laughs> so the more you got the tension the faster the rotor went around until you finally, you know locked Oop. it in so but anyway so uh they would teach us to hover and now I, it's all different but then they're like okay you're gonna fly a helicopter." then you're going to learn the most difficult part of flying a helicopter first. And instead of like getting in the helicopter and kind of wobbling into the sky and getting used to it, they put us in the helicopter and they gave you the pedals, which operate the tail rotor. They gave you the stick, which makes you go left, right, backwards, et cetera. Then they gave you a collective, which is kind of a lever. And on the end of that lever is a throttle. So you're doing the throttle, the stick up and down, the stick uh, that you're holding on to, and the pedals on the floor. Oh. And <laughs> you were supposed to stay over one spot. And uh, it was frantic, terrifying. I have no idea how brave these instructors could could be to uh, wow. try to teach us. But after about four hours, I got cleared to hover. Even though I think I was doing extreme movements, I was <laughs> over the same place. <laughs> and later I started started to relax. So uh anyway, then they would put after we learned to hover, so maybe another three or four hours, then we would I would get in the helicopter and the other uh, student would get in the helicopter and off we would go to try to figure out how to fly the helicopter <laughs> in an operational kind of way. Yeah. It was great instruction. Don't get me wrong. We had great, great instruction, but it was ferocious. And the Army was graduating 600 pilots a month to pour into the wow. Vietnam machine. And that was after nine months of training. So
1: wow.
2: sometimes as many as 500 helicopters in the air at night in the wind.
0: No. <laughs> so.
2: Yeah, it was a it was all this was going on. I don't know how many people are aware of it, besides the people that were actually su- suffering through it. So wow, that's
0: amazing. So nice. they, they were crashes, weren't they, Robert?
2: Yes. There were, unfortunately that many helicopters, and a helicopter being kind of a large assembly of moving parts, all of which which need to be present for duty. <laughs> um you would hear people going making an emergency call going down out of gas at night sometimes unfortunately the vietnamese students that were there would try their best to make their emergency announcement in english and then break into their own language um i was uh. sadly we had probably two or three mid-air crashes uh, a month and i was looking at the exact point in the sky when two helicopters came together just before we were going to take off one day for a training flight so it was it was very intense, and nothing stopped yeah. the training going forward. I mean, no one then landed and waited or anything. You just kept like in that long twenty five mile line. If a helicopter went down, if it crashed or just ran out of gas, dramatic or not dramatic, you just closed up the line and uh, kept, kept going. going. if you were to do something otherwise, no one would expect it, and it would cause more you know more problems.
1: That's amazing. Yeah. It's the things that we don't know. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah, yeah there is a certain amount of, of, of blissful ignorance involved in this. As each layer was given, <laughs> given to us. Yeah,
0: Robert, you were quite young then, so I'm guessing that um, you're looking back on these things with the wisdom of age. And had you, if you were trying to do that nowadays, the it, you know, you wouldn't do it, but back then was a different time and you were younger and there was this pressure to provide these helicopters in mass for the war machine and Vietnam, wasn't there?
2: Yes, absolutely. I, I was 21, which made me a little bit of a grandfather since most of my compatriots there were 19. And I was married oh. with one child when I joined the <laughs> army. Uh, almost wow. nobody, nobody else in that group. That I can even recall was, was married. So, I had some responsibility. Yeah. Uh, if you f- failed in flight school, yes, they gave you a rifle, the rank of buck private, and they sent you straight to Vietnam. So that was nipping at your heels
1: oh.
2: as you were trying to go oh. forward and succeed.
1: Mm. Yeah. So. Gosh! Wow.
0: Mm. Robert. One of the chapters in Up and in the Air focuses on fate, and the analogy you use is around fortune cookies. And so, I wanted to talk about fate today and how you saw fate back then and how you see fate now. How has it changed?
2: Well, that's that's a good question, Tony. I thought about that since we talked before. Yeah. Uh, Fate. Then was a a kind of a terrifying mystery, because the things that happened to people you would never expect they should happen to was, I wouldn't say earth shattering, maybe too much, but it was very um, mysterious.
1: (laughs) You Uh, tried to understand
2: what brought them to those certain circumstances. Uh, There's a portion in the book, uh, one of my chapters, the whole book, uh, there's only one chapter on Vietnam. But uh yes. there was an incident in that chapter. I'll just touch on it a little bit because it's still very yes. difficult. But um uh, a very good pilot who was Italian. Um, and in fact, he he had been married just before he came to Vietnam, I think, actually thinking back now. But anyway, um skilled. He was the first pilot I flew with when I came to Vietnam. Yeah. And this one day we were called on a mission, there were people. Uh, Where there were enemy shooting, uh, taking pot shots is what we were told at a high flying helicopter. So all the helicopters Mm -hmm. were gone. And and I was on without getting into it anyway. I was one of the the, the last ones. Yes. I didn't have we flew in pairs and I didn't have a pilot for the other helicopter. Uh, They didn't have a full crew for the other helicopter. Yes. So this Doug had his bags packed. He was in his dress uniform waiting against the Jeep to get in the Jeep and drive away to Benoit where he would get on a plane and go home. He'd been there 365 days. Absolutely. So we were short a pilot, not in my ship, but in my wing ship. Yes. So they they walked up to him and told him, get the flight suit on. Uh, Just going to take this easy mission. You're not going to be gone long you'll be back. You can get your flight. It'll. It's tomorrow. Don't worry about it. Well, Doug was the kind of guy who was like, yes, sir, no problem. I think he was aggravated that he had to change back into his flight suit, but he was certainly willing. He got in the helicopter with uh, 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 Brault, who was, they were good friends. And I, Yeah. so there was some time involved there. So I, I, I left. And when I got up there, I was the first one uh, to arrive on the scene. And waiting for them because it was just like a nothing mission to us the way it was described. So anyway, to to shorten it up, um, I got in a fierce firefight with two pieces of heavy machine guns and used all my rockets up about the time they came and they um, were very dramatically and horribly shot down. Oh attacking, Robert. Attacking the same place. Mm. And um the thing is, I mean, why did Doug? Yeah. It could have been somebody else, yeah. but that was this thing of fate. Like it's just yes. Like, yes. what what was combining out there to make yes. that happen at that yeah. particular moment? Yes. And if the Jeep would have driven away ten minutes sooner or this or that, exactly. yeah.
0: Yes. Um.
2: Later, now looking back at fate, I realize it's a piece of the puzzle of flight of life, certainly, because there are so many moving parts in life and so many yes. things we don't yes. understand. And we have no idea yes. how they're gathering to either be in mm. our favor <laughs> or be against us. So,
1: Yeah. I hope that, God, wasn't, agree too long, that
2: one. wasn't too long winded. but uh, No, Robert. Thank God. you. Um,
0: it- Thank you for, again, being able to talk to us about some of the difficulties that you experienced in Vietnam and to have and be surrounded by such turns of fate that was so negative and that still impact, obviously, on you today. Um, We're really, Kev and I, very appreciative of your vulnerability in talking about Mm. that. I think
1: Kev has a, another question for you. I do. This is one of my okay. favourites. I <laughs> do. So I've got a question for you, Robert. It's called, what are snakes and what are their significance in Vietnam?
2: Well, the, one, the chapter on Vietnam is called Snakes and Rockets, and uh, I know that's a bit mm. of a who can figure that out, but the helicopter I was flying was very advanced for its time. a it was a new, a new design. And it was a, called a cobra by the army. Oh, and right! Slang in Vietnam, yeah, was to call it a snake. Uh, we were snake okay. snake drivers. Yeah,
0: yeah,
1: snake
2: drivers. Okay. Don't, don't think, oh, oh, no, we've got... go ahead. <laughs>
1: I know we've got snakes here on Australia, which I'm terrified of, and I thought it's got nothing to do with that. <laughs>
2: Believe me, there were there were snakes and snake stories in Vietnam, but that particular reference is to the helicopter.
1: <laughs> okay, yeah. Tony, um, Robert, those snakes were
0: pretty fast helicopters, weren't they?
2: They were relatively. Uh, my airplane friend, uh, air fixed wing friends may snicker, but. Uh, the the, <laughs> the troop carrying helicopters went about a hundred and five maybe the cobra could go like two hundred and ten miles an hour in a dive and about hundred and fifty wow. uh wow In cruise. So yes, we were considered super fast compared yes. to other helicopters, you know. So yeah. But it was only three feet wide and then it had wings to hang really stuff on, and it's 50 feet long, so it was very narrow.
0: Were they light, Robert? Were the, the those copper helicopters? Were they light in comparison to the other ones? Was that was uh, that their intent that they could fly fast and maneuver in uh, combat?
2: Yes, they what well, they weren't lighter necessarily, but they carried a lot of armament. They had a different rotor system that was high, you know, high uh, performance, and uh, we could maneuver much more dramatically than a, than a normal helicopter.
0: Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Did that yes, make them that. safer Robert that's the sorry? fact that they could man- did that make them a little bit safer the fact that they were like narrower and could maneuver so well in combat
2: well it's kind of uh yes and a no because yes <laughs> they were you were only three feet wide so you presented a much narrower target oh, uh, right and the, mm. uh, helicopters were were used as gunships by hanging different weapons on them they were eight feet wide and they only went 60 miles an hour at the top of their dive and Mm. uh so you had a very hostile environment uh that you were constantly flying in but on the other hand they were fast nimble and there were we had other other things that made them ferocious yes
0: yeah would they um with a snake something that you enjoyed flying robert
2: Oh uh, yes, I I did. Yeah. I I was uh able to go to uh, when I was when everybody went to Vietnam I got to go to Cobra school for about I think it was a month uh in Savannah, yes. Georgia and then I went to Vietnam but yes, I was thrilled to be able to be chosen for uh, to fly a cobra and mm-hmm. I I think back about it often. Mm-hmm. The fl- yeah. just the
0: fl- a just month. Is- yeah. A month is not long to train in a specialized no. aircraft,
2: no. is it, well, really? The one thing they told us in, in the Cobra School was you'll never fly at night because it's not designed to fly at night. And uh, that, of course, like the yeah. Army, doesn't always tell the truth. I think we know that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, was, I wouldn't say half, but a good 30% of my flying was in the darkest night you can ever imagine in your
1: life. Wow. Well.
0: <laughs> yeah. Which leads well. us to the next question, Robert, is night flying, what's the difference from night, obviously, the the darkness, but what are the special implications of flying at night?
2: Well, personally, you know, flying, say, here in the United States, I love flying at night. It gives you that sense of you're totally isolated. There's nothing distracting. I find it challenging. I find it fairly soothing, actually, in a lot of ways. In war it's a little startling because there in that environment the black is blacker than than Indian ink and you're going yeah. into 45 degree dives you know charging down towards ground you can't see uh, the bullets are a lot brighter at night we see a lot more of the you know the threat at night yes. in that in that way uh, but it, you had to just know how high the hills or the mountains were and know when you were going to pull out. And not every month, but quite frequently experienced pilots with very inexperienced pilots in the front seat, the Cobra was one behind the other, Um, flew straight into the ground right behind their rockets. And we call that target fixation because of the darkness and everything, and you're concentrating on trying to hit the target, and you forget about the altimeter unwinding.
0: Uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Really yeah. it was really dangerous, wasn't it, Robert? like it just yes, it, but when um, we were shooting not it, just it, the war I'm
1: yeah, sorry?
0: it wasn't just the war, it was the combination of um all of the elements that made it just it must have been terrifying at times
2: well, we didn't you know we didn't have weather radar, so at night we had no idea what the weather was, we didn't know if it was going to rain or not oh. rain, uh you know there was no reference you know there aren't there are no lights on the ground. It's deep jungle, mm. you know, so it's very black. Mm. So you would call that an airline pilot would say that was IFR, you know, flying in the clouds or instrument because you have no reference to the ground. But for us, yeah. we weren't super trained in that environment, but we were in it, but you're right. There were lots and lots of, of, of elements um, including not being able to see the weather. In fact, there's one uh, short story in my book about having to fly through a severe thunderstorm. And we don't have auto, Ooh. we had no autopilots, we had no radar. And so every mission was a, uh, you know, put it together the best you can and you never considered not accomplishing the mission. You tried to figure out mm. how to get it done, you know. Not, I'm not saying that in heroic it, terms, I just, everybody was conscientious because if you fail. scary you were, enough driving through a else. through
1: a thunderstorm, let alone flying 3-1. Yeah, exactly.
2: It was like flying under. It was like diving into a lake in a submarine. Believe me, I couldn't believe wow. you kept yeah. running in that mm. kind of water. And uh, of course, the flashes of lightning were continuous. Anyway, but mm. and back to your original point about you know being young, I guess it helped.
1: <laughs> I guess it does. Yeah. So, Robert, what about flying accidents, incidents, and dangerous situations? Um, you've had many of those across your career. Can you tell your audience about one of those and how you got back in the helicopter or plane? And what about your near-death experiences? Did they change the way you fly or did they change the way you live?
2: Uh-huh. Well, that's that's a good question. Um, I know. <laughs> <laughs> i tell you, it, 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 you never considered quitting over it, but uh you did try to be more proficient it did humble you not not in yeah. the way that you were more fearful but you <clears throat> realized a little more about what you were really up against you know because often yeah. like we talked about there's a there's a lot of ignorance involved if you're a yeah. fairly low experience i i was um there's a chapter called lost uh, the end of the world lost river and it was a, a a box canyon not far from the bering strait so it's way up there and um flying into in that-
0: Alaska robert
2: yes i'm sorry in alaska and yeah. uh we were going to do a, a, a exploration job there and i was flying a helicopter and an airplane on that particular um uh, job uh at the end of the job we had an eskimo cook who was a delightful young short small eskimo uh, great cook, much better than our boss, who tried to save money by cooking. <laughs> anyway, we, we told him you should be lucky at the rocks and not cooking. So we did get a, a better. Cook. But he had been; he claimed that he'd been in thirty-five uh, snowmobile accidents, and uh, okay. his right leg was like a two by four. But he mm-hmm. got around very well, and he had a little puppy. So anyway, at the end of all of this, I took the airplane, and he uh, we gave him all the extra canned food and different things from the camp to take back to his village. I was going to fly him there with all this can, all these canned goods. Mm. So I loaded the, I loaded the airplane, uh, took the back seats out and loaded it full of cans and stuff. And when you're kind of a bush pilot, you're not weighing it on a scale and checking your computer and doing (laughs) all of that. You're kind of, you know, this weighs about this, this weighs about that. Yeah. So then when I went to put him in his leg, was in the way all the time. I couldn't get him in the front seat, so I finally had to push the seat all the way back, so I could get his leg in. And so I had to reload the helicopter further back, and uh, not good. <laughs> no, not helicopter. <laughs> the airplane. It was a Cessna 185. I had to load it back. So, so we're going down this gravel runway, and all of a sudden, the airplane leaps into the air before I'm even ready. And I have to stick all the way forward, and we're still climbing steeper and steeper and It's like we're gonna stall any second. Sure. I, I'm sorry, <laughs> and I pulled the throttle off, and that let the nose come down a little bit, but I still had to stick all the way forward and Of course, i what I'd done had loaded the teeter totter a little too heavy at the other side, so I had yeah. run out of flight controls, so I was flying trying to hold the throttle to keep the nose down, but the stick was up against the, the the panel as far as it could go. So my arms were locked. So it was too late to land. So I, I tried to turn and come back, which I did. And we made a swooping dive at the runway, hoping I could land. We were going way too fast. And everybody then thought we were doing an air show. So they were waving. Uh, yay, the cook was waving. And his, puppy, his little dog leaped off of his lap and started running around the airplane. He got in a panic before everybody else. And uh, so I I pulled up, and my arms were shaking, and I'm like, i got to get back on the ground. And uh, I made a steep turn and came in. Thank God I landed. <laughs> I taxied the airplane over, shut it off, got the net, the big net for the helicopter, put all the cans in the net, Put him easily in the helicopter with his stiff leg, and hung that load you know under the helicopter, a big load. Yes, and went to the village. It took us longer, <laughs> but we got there. But uh, that was a <laughs> terrifying moment where if I would have let up on my arms for even a second or quit thinking, then uh, it would have been a disaster. So
1: yeah, um,
2: yeah, those kind of things. Afterwards, you think deeply about it, and you're much more careful later. Uh, yes. And there is a Didn't certain. Did you
0: know any different?
2: I'm sorry, go ahead. The cook
0: didn't didn't know any different, did he?
2: No, no. He thought it was like Santa Claus being (laughs) created in the crew. (laughs) Only his dog
1: panicked. (laughs) (laughs) Dangerous situation which you can sit back and smile at now.
2: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's a great story. Robert, Up in the Air is peppered with wonderful
0: insights into the technical components of flight from helicopters to aircraft. You're an expert in this field. How did you accomplish the difficulty in converting this type of technical information into such a readable and interesting script for the readers of your book?
2: Thank you, Tony. I'm glad that you feel that it was comprehensible because... (laughs) taking on an airplane is one thing, which is pretty challenging, but taking on the helicopter thing, uh, you know, and there's one place mm-hmm. in there where I was describing light landing on a slope and so on. But when I was young, I read, I, and in my dedication of my book, I mentioned both these uh, pilot authors and they were, I read them several, their books several times when I was about 14 and I just amazing that you could feel you were in the cockpit, but you didn't feel intimidated by all the technical aspects So I kind of had that in mind and I really tried because I wanted this book to be not just for pilots, but for a wider audience, which I've been fairly successful at, that they would enjoy the stories and understand what was going on. So it would make the stories richer, uh, you know, more, more uh, uh, relatable. Yeah. So uh, that was a that was a big goal for me. And I had a terrific editor uh, who whose father wanted to fly. But other than that, she had no connection with flying. And between the two of us, we Um, we wrestled it into a, I think it's, I have a large uh, glossary. It is readable. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's still very readable and relatable, so the technical uh, information doesn't detract from the storytelling, which is the intent of your writing anyway, Robert. So well done on that. Um, Kez is up with the next
1: question for you. All right. Robert. I just want you to keep talking because it's just so interesting what you're saying. But I will ask you this question. Up in the air is a series of short stories from your decades in the air. Do you have a favorite chapter? And if so, why?
2: Well, I've been asked this before. And I'll make a small confession to start with. and I ask my wife this all the time. Uh, I don't want to turn into a narcissist or an egomaniac, but I'll go into my book and check something to check something. And 30 minutes later, I'm still there drawn into the story. I asked my wife, is this healthy or not? I'm not sure. So I, each time I go in there, I do enjoy going back. It's like I'm back in those particular things. And, you know, like Vietnam, of course, is somber. The, um, some of the things Leading up to wanting to be a pilot is pretty interesting um the my logging chapter uh logging with a helicopter i mean really, what does that mean uh mm. you know uh, and uh there's a chapter in there dangerous. About, yeah yeah, that's <laughs> something else so um so like like the production with a helicopter, I guess you say the logging is kind of interesting um then there's the e m s which I think I shared with Tony at one time. Mm. Uh, you know, yeah. involved in these life and death efforts and mm. your judgment is everything's hanging on the decisions you make because you got to get back on the ground or they're not going to get to the hospital. And then I I have a chapter in there about tailwheel airplanes. And I, I start with uh, I was flying this crop duster. You're familiar with a big yellow crop duster? Yes. I was yeah. trying to land on a muddy road and anyway as <laughs> a short story I ended up cartwheeling down the road wingtip to wingtip and going into a ditch. But at the end of that particular chapter um I we had a little airplane and this was in North Carolina and my children were all let's small let's say from 10 to to about 4 I believe. And uh, so I had a little two-place airplane just you know one seat another seat like a Volkswagen maybe even narrower. Yeah and a little space behind the seat. So I put the two youngest girls next to me with one adult seatbelt around them. And then I put the other two older kids in the baggage <laughs> compartment there behind the seat <laughs> with a great big seatbelt that went from one side of the plane to the other with a big buckle <laughs> on it. So we had a five-place airplane with 85 horsepower. <laughs> and this one sunny Saturday morning, we loaded up with pals and a cooler and flew down Near the ocean, it was where the uh, the noose river goes into the ocean. They had nice big brown beaches, and there was a little grass airstrip down there. Um, uh, I could read you a piece of that, but maybe we don't have time but um i we do
0: we do you do if you'd like to read it, we do yeah, yeah I can read the
2: after the um after the beach, and we came back, the towels were wet, I loaded the kids the of course, the children in the back were under wet towels so we got to the end of the runway and I put the tail as far back as I could because nothing's more useless than the runway behind you and I stood on the brakes and I pushed the throttle of this pounding 85 horsepower engine to full throttle Um, I fully advanced the throttle while pushing on the brakes the engine sounded nice and smooth Now, this runway, at the end of the runway, is a motel. And behind me are tall trees, and on the left of me are tall trees. Yeah. The engine sounded nice and smooth. I lowered the pressure of my feet on the tow brakes and was mildly surprised that we weren't accelerating with the usual initial surge, even though we were on grass and not concrete. We were halfway down the strip before the... Tail started to rise slightly. That was not good. I looked at the airspeed indicator. The needle registered nothing. It only showed the occasional feeble bounce. Then everything happened quickly. The strip was small and short, really short. I realized it about the time that the motel began to fill the windscreen. It was one story. Luckily, I might add. That. <laughs> With a sickening feeling, I instantly realized that the long grass was tugging at the Cessna, slowing its acceleration. Vital insight, but a little late. My only choice was to fly or go straight into the lobby of the motel. There was neither time or space to stop. As I pulled back hard on the control wheel, the little plane struggled along the ground a bit longer and then lifted into the air. The building no longer loomed in the windscreen, but in, but in, uh, its image was immediately replaced by the large heavy wires of the power line just beyond. Maybe my flying routine of hanging on the edge of a stall during crop dusting turns had been a factor. I, I couldn't say for sure, but we were so slow clearing the last wire, I could no longer hold the climb. I pushed the wheel full forward, wondering if the tail would bring the last wire with it. This was the fly-as-you-go proposition. Not only was I not scanning the flight instruments, but I also didn't give a damn. Getting over the wires was all that mattered. As they say, everything was open but the toolbox, and the only thing on the airspeed indicator was the manufacturer's name. Wow. I pointed the nose down towards the broad expanse of river and prayed for the best. With the nose down, we finally began to accelerate. It had been too long without any recognizable airspeed, so I welcomed the rising noise of air pushing against the fuselage. We weren't very high when we cleared the power lines, but because the ground sloped down at some distance to the river, we had enough room to dive. I held the nose down as long as I dared, but like a spraying soybeans, I was only a few feet above the water when I pulled the wheel back and soared across the river's calm surface in the direction of home. The two oldest in the back were quiet. They never said a word. And I wondered what the takeoff must have felt like when you're stuck in the shadows behind a seat draped in wet towels. (laughs) Curious that on certain occasions in aviation, a miracle occurs. Not for anyone and not just for those who seem to deserve it. And certainly not each time. Since aerospace is shared with angels, you tend to think of them first. But gremlins and other questionable creatures have also been blamed or credited for either hindering or helping the struggling aviator trying to save his bird. It wasn't by chance that the old song coming in on a wing on a prayer was one of the most popular Army Air Force tunes in World War II. After landing safely, you look back and you wonder, well, engineers or more experienced pilots declared that it could never have happened. Are you sure you got the facts straight? They'd asked boldly. The plane couldn't possibly have stayed in the air. I humbly believe my foolishness and ignorance as a 120 pilot aside, and without doubt, a gentle giant of the sky, inspired by God or angels, tenderly lifted our small plane because of its precious cargo.
1: Oh, and Robert the
2: high wires and gave us back our airspeed. <laughs> it was so many years ago but I still
0: <laughs> Yeah. Robert, thank you for reading that for our listeners and audience today. What a precious insight into some of your uh, stories in flight. Now, I want to just, we're getting towards the end of this amazing um, interview at the moment, and I just want to mention a couple of things. Number one, you've got lots of women buying your book, and they're buying it for their husbands, partners, sons, etc. Has that been surprising for you?
2: Well, uh, yes. I, I was hopeful it'd have a broad audience, but they actually, according to the reviews at least, have read the book mm-hmm. and then given it. Maybe bought it for their husband, but were drawn into it and mm. read it, and then urged them to read it. I have quite a f- number of good reviews on Amazon from all from uh, ladies. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, lovely women. women.
0: Do rock. Um, I'm gonna read for the audience one of those reviews because it's really lovely and it and it and it gives an explanation of of up in the air. So it says exciting flying memoir, a collection of autobiographical short stories from the author's experiences as both a helicopter and fixed wing pilot. Robert Fulton's thrilling new memoir kept me turning pages late into the night. Fulton Wright's gut-wrenching moments that brought me to tears and hair-raising experiences explained in detail. The author's wonderful storytelling puts the reader right in the pilot's seat through Vietnam, Arctic flying, perilous wire-filled city and low-visibility night flying. Up in the Air is an excellent read to be enjoyed by pilots and passengers alike. Um what a wonderful review Robert.
2: Yes, thank you. I it, it is and I appreciate that you read it. Thank you.
0: I, I I um I enjoyed it immensely. Um and you know from talking to me previously I have a real love of of flight and right. uh, helicopters, planes, gliders, hot air balloons, et cetera, et cetera. so um and from my perspective um it was a wonderful, wonderful read, Robert. Um, I think Pez has um another question for you in our last five minutes. Okay.
1: Well, really, it's just that it's a it's a close-up question, Robert. It's um what does the future look like for Robert Fulton? What does it hold for you?
2: I'm thankful that my career kind of crash landed at the end, not literally, but because I had to turn to who I was and what some of the opportunities were lurking there that I had, I had wanted to write. And I had had other things. I have many, many interests, but I was always, you know, supporting my family or <laughs> uh, whatever. And I loved to fly. I loved to fly and I couldn't imagine not flying. Uh, but I'm so thankful that that stopped and that I was able to bring about this book and I really, really wanted to make it a quality product. And I so I learned a great deal. And I was very fortunate to get a good editor. Um, yeah, I had written a short story before uh, about uh, mixed-race orphans in the last year of the war in Saigon. I turned it into a script, which has been mm-hmm. just amazingly embraced by those who are professionals about its possibilities, and we're proceeding with that. But now I'm going to write that in back into a fiction story. Uh, I thought at first I would be writing that towards, you know, younger adults. But now it seems like everybody, everybody reads Harry Potter, so I guess everybody reads everything. So.
0: <laughs> that's true, that's true. Well, so anyway, I'm,
2: I'm looking forward to it. And um, it's not that I, you know, I, the electronics and the computers and social media – is important. I enjoy, there's a certain thing I enjoy, but what I like to do is write. <laughs> I really, that's what I want to do. And I, I try yeah. to um, keep mm. two or three hours or sometimes four hours a day and just protect it no matter what. Uh, so I can write. It so I don't, that. I have friends with airplanes, but they the one friend I have the possibility of flying with the, her engine is broken right now. So <laughs> I don't know if I'll <laughs> see the sky again, but uh, one person that read the book, Showed up at my door and asked me if I wanted to go up in his airplane, and he took me for a nice flight down the coast. Oh,
1: nice. Oh, very oh, nice. Yeah, so that was very nice.
2: nice. Yeah, yeah.
1: Was very nice. Uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. So,
0: obviously, there's more writing on the cards for you, Robert um I know that you're you've got a wonderful um speaking career do you want to do you have a preference for writing over speaking or do you like both of them equally
2: well thank you for asking that uh Tony I, I actually both I do I I, yeah. I had hoped COVID kind of messed this all up but uh I <laughs> hope to speak <laughs> in live to live audiences uh, I've done just I've yeah. done some of it and I find it very rewarding and uh plotting a speech and being able to communicate what you're saying yes. very effectively is just as challenging as as putting it on the it is on, even though it's different it you know is. yeah, yeah. And, and the script writing was a whole other way of communicating because you yes. do, you're only able to put down what you see and hear you can't do little descriptive things. They don't want that. So
1: no, they don't very, very interesting. Yeah. It is yeah. Well done.
0: Robert well well done thank you so much. It's a real credit to you to be able to write such a fabulous memoir um, at the at the end of your career and share your insights with the world. For those of you listening live on air today, just a reminder that uh, Robert's book is called Up in the Air, A Pilot's Journey, and the links, will be available on the live feed right now. Um, Peo will put them up for you. But if you miss the live feed and you happen to be listening while you're driving or watching from somewhere else, the links to connect with Robert, to buy his book, uh, to connect with him on social media are all available on um, RadioTony.com where you'll find those links. Uh, again to buy the book it's also available on amazon as well it's called a pilot's journey um by robert fulton robert thank you very much we're down to our last 60 60 seconds of the live show it's been a wonderful pleasure to talk to you again um kez anything else you'd like to say before we round up the show today i'd like to read the book <laughs>
2: Oh, but I did the I did the audio book. I kind of took my a deep breath and did that. So the audiobook and the ebook are both also available on uh, Amazon.
1: Okay, yeah. I know where to go now. It's it was a great a pleasure
2: book. to meet you, uh, Casey and uh, uh, Tony. Thanks so very much for including me again. I appreciate it. Lovely oh, to meet you, Robert. It's a
0: wonderful, wonderful interview to have, and the, again, both Kez and I are passionate about storytelling. Um, and storytelling from an author's perspective. Thank you for being so open and vulnerable with us again. Um, just a final reminder, people, grab on, jump on, and grab a copy of Robert's book. It's called A Pilot's Journey Up in the Air. Available on Amazon in uh, paperback and audiobook and ebook too, isn't it, Robert? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Um, If you buy the audio version, you'll get to hear Robert's wonderful voice talking about his story. That, my listeners, is our lot for this week. Uh, Kez and I will be having a short break next week because it's Easter, but we will be back with another author interview the following week, and we will keep bringing wonderful, amazing stories to you each and every week. That's our lot for this week. Thanks for tuning in and listening to Radio Tony, A Conversation with Kez. Thank you to my gorgeous co-host, Kez Wickham St. George. Thank you, Robert Fulton, for joining us today. That, my friends, is it. Bye for now.
1: Bye, Bye -bye. everyone. Bye-bye.
2: Bye Bye now. Thank you.